Today I'm going to talk about the day in the life of a case leader at a major consulting firm and I'm going to talk about my own project that I ran, um, my first project as a case leader when I was appointed. Well, technically it was my first project. I had done some smaller projects before that but this is pretty much the first large project I'd run. Before I continue this podcast, I must apologize in advance because I'm sitting at the business class lounge um, in Dubai and even though this is meant to be an insulated room, I can sometimes hear announcements coming through. So you are going to hear announcements at some point of this podcast and I apologize for that in advance. But um, I wanted to talk about this particular project because the previous day in the life of um, podcast I did talked about a project in an emerging market, um, quite a rough and tough industry with us getting our hands dirty and so on, literally. Today I want to do the opposite. I want to talk about a project in a developed economy. This one's based in London, UK, and it was a corporate finance engagement. And what made this project particularly interesting is the fact that I don't have a corporate finance background. So uh, I don't have a finance background. I don't have a business background. I'm a I'm a science guy, you know, mathematics, uh, thermodynamics, and so on. And it was my first major project as a case leader, and I was put in to run this project. And one of the reasons I was put in to run this project was because of the strategic um, issues at play. It was a corporate finance project, but there were a lot of strategic considerations that had to be brought into uh, play. And uh, the partner asked me to come in. I liked the project. Look, London's a great place to be. Uh, it was early spring, you know, fantastic weather. Um, a, a landmark client, one of the largest clients of the firm. It was definitely going to be interesting. Now, the team on the project wasn't very large. It was only five people. It was myself as the case leader. I had two associates and I had one analyst and then I had another analyst brought in later when the associate became a little bit ill. So it was someone to, to handle the workload. But a very small team and nothing extravagant here. In fact, the two associates, one was working part-time on the project, not really full-time assigned. He was managing some other things. But we're under a lot of pressure because the client, I'm not going to give away any details. It's quite a well-known uh, company. But let's put it this way. The client was one of the world's largest companies in its sector. It had just survived a brutal hostile takeover and it was now trying to rebuild itself after that hostile takeover attempt. That hostile takeover attempt was was horrible for the client in the sense that they had seen some of their most trusted uh, shareholders and um, stakeholders turn against them. Some of the executive committee members, in def some of the members of the EXCO, you know, the ex the executive committee, in defending the uh, takeover, one of the executive committee members' wife contracted cancer during this period, and she had passed away. Um, so it was it was a very very uh, traumatic emotional time for the client, and they were really looking to rebuild. They had, they had had the siege mentality for so long, and they were now trying to get through it. Their largest shareholder, an activist shareholder, one of the most respected men in finance in the city of London, you know, Sir So and So, um, was agitating for change. He felt that the company was undervalued, and he wanted the CEO to take action, or he was threatening to have the CEO replaced. So we were entering this very um, volatile situation. I mean, the the, the company was large. It would have survived this, but emotionally the company felt they were under siege. And I think the thing you have to understand here that that makes this so that made this so difficult for us is that we had developed a strategy for the company that had launched the hostile takeover, but against the company we're now working for. Of course, at that time we never knew that the strategy that we had developed and put in play would have led to that company concluding that to launch a takeover for their largest um, for their largest competitor. But that's what happened, and you know there were we never 
advocated that even if we did advocate it the point is there was an hostility because the current client knew we were somehow involved um, the CEO didn't mind because the CEO was new so he didn't really mind that we had worked for the client he thought it was a good thing that we had seen the, you know what the competitor was doing but the rest of the executive committee was fairly hostile towards us because we were the guys that you know orchestrated this and of course I wasn't on that team so I had no idea what was going on the partner was not part of that team so you know, we tried to keep a clean slate so I'm going to talk you through some specific incidences on this project and how we built this project up, right? I think one thing that distinguishes this project is that there was no heavy lifting in terms of going out and visiting horrible sites and visiting, you know, uh, dangerous locations. We did most of this project sitting out of a gleaming office in the city of London. You know, the few times I walked out of the office was on an end to get something to eat or go for dinner or whatever it was but more or less this was quite a you know these are the projects that consultants have a reputation for doing you know the french cufflinked projects where you fly first class you live a glamorous lifestyle when you get out of the office you walk a few blocks down the road and you go to a fancy nightclub they come rarely but this is one of those projects right uh, and i can't say i've had too many of them so i knew that i had to make this count and i had a pretty good team on the project i think that one of the things that made this project really good for me was that i had a very very loyal team on the project uh, i was very young when i was appointed case leader i was in my middle 20s you know 25 24 uh, and i was a case leader i was leading this team so a really young team on the project in fact a lot of the some of the associates on the team were older than me and um, one of the analysts was actually um, um, you know not so far away from my age actually so a very young team a very loyal team because i'd worked with them if you followed my podcast you'd know previous projects i've done before uh, before this and i've worked with them before so i was quite fortunate to have people that uh, knew me well that i trusted that trusted me so we had a quite a crack team on the project the partner was also a very very capable guy from the corporate finance practice and a, a, a guru in his field again very young i mean this guy was in his late 30s but just you know he he had literally written some of the material in this field so so he was really really well known and we 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 started this project number i'm going to talk to you about specific incidences that give you a flavor of the challenges the opportunities and just the, the dynamism that we faced i remember the first meeting we had we arrived i arrived with the partner and i brought along one associate it was just an initial planning meeting we wanted to meet the ceo the associate was there to just talk about some of the initial work that was being done and we arrived in this gleaming stately you know old colonial looking um, uh, british head office with this massive massive hallway and these two secretary two secretaries at the end catering for um, uh, one um, ceo and we we're, were taken into this room and you know, it's it's it reminded me of the feeling i had when i saw british companies operating out of south africa and india and australia in the 1900s you know they had this stately wood paneled tables you know it just looked like the way the harvard club would look like if it was the british harvard club you know you understand what i'm trying to say it was really it was old school um and we sat down with the ceo and we had a pretty nice discussion i didn't really have much to say to be honest uh my view on initial meetings as i go to observe i let the partner do most of the talking i simply wanted to introduce myself to the ceo and, and then the partner wanted to introduce introduce me and let him know i'd be running the study and i remember the part i i mean i could look at the ceo's face and he's pretty much wondering you know what this guy looks really young but he didn't really give it away and 
you know, and it, it was about 45 minutes into the discussion, he makes a comment like, you know, uh, I've been in this company for a long time, you know, you know, well, for example, before you were born. So, you know, the, obviously it's bothering the client a little bit that the team looks so young, but he doesn't want to say it because he's he knows the firm, but he brings it out in his own way. So we knew that would be a challenge up front because most of the people in this industry had been there for about 30, 40 years. They'd grown up in the industry. The executive comedy were, comedy were battle-hardened in the, in the sense that they have literally, they have scars on their face and hands having having worked in this industry. So that first meeting went well, I think. And we set up camp at the head office, you know, crunching the numbers and so on. And, and pretty much what we wanted to do in this project was to determine how to increase the share price of the company. That was it. They felt their share price was undervalued. The investors were telling them it were, they were undervalued. And they felt they were undervalued for a number of reasons. Firstly, the risk profile of this company as calculated by the internal risk analysts and the equity um, research analysts indicated that they had a lower risk profile than... Um, peers, but they had they were trading at a higher discount. So for those of you who don't know corporate uh, finance in a discount, I'm referring to the P ratio. The P ratio was lower. You know, if you want to understand this project, you know, maybe read some of um, Timothy Collar's work from uh, McKinsey Quartley or Murren's uh, work also from the McKinsey Quartley to get an understanding of the of the work we're doing. So um, so we went in and our job is really to understand firstly, you know, what should this company be valued at? Is it overvalued or undervalued? That was the first question we had to ask because we couldn't take it for granted that they were undervalued. Then, once we determined they were over and undervalued, if they were undervalued, what should they do to increase their valuation? And this was quite a broad-ranging strategy project, obviously couched in corporate finance terms. And it was very exciting. So working out of an office, crunching through tons and tons of data. You know, Bloomberg becomes your friend over those sessions. And the client was quite nice to us, I think. I mean, they gave us very, very uh, good, um, um, uh, they gave us a good location in their head office, which gave us access to the executive comedy. That's, I mean, despite the CEO maybe having some apprehension about our age, he did give us a lot of access, which I was quite happy with. Of course, we didn't abuse it. We didn't go in and see him every chance we had. We tried to stay to ourselves unless we had something important to bring out. So that was the first, I think, incident to show some of the challenges we're facing. The second one was when we met the executive committee, and we didn't meet the whole executive committee. We'd meet them later, and that's an interesting story in itself. But we met, I think, the the, the, the key lieutenants here, the chief operating officer, the chief marketing officer, and the um, chief financial officer. And it was very clear to us that... Um, the CEO did not want to be seen as putting his imprint on the project, so he let us meet the the, the, the three-headed monster, as I'd like to call them separately. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way. So, you know, don't don't please don't quote me out of context and say that a former you know consultant from one of the big three called a client a three-headed monster. That's not what I mean. I mean the three-headed monster. I mean these were the guys that fought the takeover before, and they were well known in the press for what they had done. I mean they fought. I mean, literally gave their blood in some cases to fight. And that's why they called the, the three-headed monster. They were tough. They knew the industry. They knew what they wanted. I remember sitting with the CFO, and I was trying to explain to him, well, I'm listening more than explaining, but he, he, he did corner us, and he asked me point blankly, you know, what do you think we should do? And I said, well, you know, we don't know yet what you should do, but this is what we are going to do to determine what you what we think you should do. And bottom line is first is to determine, you know, what is your return on invested capital because that drives your share price. And I mean, this guy went into a 22-minute um, um, monologue in terms of how we don't know anything about his business. 
Return on invested capital has nothing to do with it. If we think return on invested capital drives this business, then we don't know anything about this industry. We need to go back or need to change the consultants. He thinks it's a waste of time if we're going to go down this route. And really, I think, you know, whenever I interview people and I put pressure on them, I really think to myself, wow, how would these people react in this situation? This was not a pleasant um, uh, uh, you know, fight back. This guy was attacking me personally. I didn't let it bother me. I mean, look, even if he didn't like me personally, I doubted that was the reason he doesn't know me enough. So he's probably got a lot going on. I just took notes. And the, the most important thing is you don't want to embarrass an executive ever, ever. There is never a moment where you have to defend yourself and fight against an executive, as, but especially in front of his two lieutenants. The chief Operating Officer, while on par the executive committee, I mean, it, it's widely known the CFO is the second in command here. So... I just listen, and I think that's one of the th ways I won a lot of respect in that meeting. Is I just said, okay, I'm going to capture all the comments you've you've given me, all the concerns. I'm going to put this down here on this flip chart. I'm going to make sure we address it the next time before the next time we see you. So I I went through it. A lot of it was was really. I think worthless to address it. It wasn't. It was emotional stuff thrown onto the table due to the stress they won, but it didn't really affect the project. But I put it down anyway. I wasn't going to address it, but I was going to show them why it wasn't worth addressing. I just listened, collected information, and so on. Again, don't defend yourself unless you have something plausible to put on the table. So I, I you know, it was an hour and a half meeting. I just sat there, took notes, and we had this great discussion at the end in the last 30 minutes about, because I'm, I made sure I listened to them. I used words like, you know, I understand what you're going through. Maybe tell me why you feel we should use the measure you're putting forward. I'm not going to mention the measure because it's an unusual measure. And it'll be easy to identify this company, but they use an unusual financial measure. So tell me why you'd use this measure. And I, and I started sketching out the implications of using the measure. So if you use this measure, tell me how do you manage the operations because it's a bit difficult to translate this down. And at the end of the session, without defending it, but just by trying to understand what they were saying, I think at the end, the chief operating officer certainly said, you know what, I think you've just by discussing this, I think you've raised some important points we need to consider. So we'd be quite interested in seeing what you, you know, come up with. And the ch chief financial officer, difficult guy, but he also agreed. Look, yeah, no, the points you raise are important. So, you know, please try to build that into your study. So, you, you notice the tactic I followed here was not about not about defending myself, but simply by listening to them in excessive detail. Not even pointing out, but getting them to see the flaws in the argument. Because if you are truly right, you don't have to defend what you're doing. If you are truly right, the flaws in their argument would come through. And that was a, uh, the second, I think, really difficult meeting we had. It didn't get any easier because you know, what we were trying to do was quite theoretical. And I remember the framework we came up with was to, was to do the following. Firstly, they wanted us to come up with a value framework, a value creation framework. How do they create value, right? So we said, okay... This is the way we see it. You need to come up with a. We need to know what your strategy is, and you know we we had those discussions, quite a few actually. And the strategy was good, but it wasn't really pinned down per se. But uh, the strategy wasn't bad. It was it was a pretty good strategy. I thought it was well thought through when I went through it, and the partner also we know thought it was pretty well through, well thought through. So we came up. We determined what was their strategy. Then we determined like, if this is your strategy. How do you maximize your business operations risks and so on to get the maximum return? from your strategy, right? And then we split that into two parts. Firstly, if this is your strategy and this is the way you're going to create value, how do you manage your operations to create value? What will be the performance measures? What will be the short and medium term measures? What will be the long term sustainability, growth and value creation for each of your operations? Then we said, well, it's about share price. You know, you can have the best strategy, but if you purely communicate it, 
it's not going to work. So the next part of our strategy, our next part of our engagement was looking at investor relations. You know, how do we? Who are your investor segments? Why do you have them as your segments? Why do you target this group of investors? Why do you make changes as a result of things this, these investors are saying? Then we said, okay, how do we make sure the correct information is transmitted to the correct investors? How do we make sure your investors understand the strategy? How do we make sure you understand your investors? And how do you communicate back to the operations? So this is quite an interesting dynamic. We had three parts. The one is to four parts. What is the strategy? How do we maximize value? How do we manage the operations to create value? And how do we communicate this? And to be fair, I would say that what was interesting about this project was just trying to understand the challenges of explaining finance to people. Now, you would think this would be easy, right? I mean, you would think you pick up uh, Breeley Myers, you know, corporate finance, MBA textbook, or whatever the books are. I can't remember all of them, but I know the associates and the partners had these books with them. But the point is, you think you'd pick up these books and these things would be obvious, but they're not. They're not obvious in the sense that it's not that the CFO doesn't understand finance. It's the sense that these books don't particularly explain in a simple and correct and easy to understand format how finance has changed in the last few years. One of the things we realized is that is that there was a massive rise in what we call institutional traders. You know, these big funds like Barclays Global Index, which buy stocks not by understanding the underlying principles of the company and how they operate, but by looking at how the stock, it, basically mathematical trading, fundamentals. And one of the things we had to explain to the client is how does this class of investor, these ones that work with these basically quants, looking at massive amounts of data, how do they differ from your traditional investors? who understand the fundamentals of the company. You know, your investors are telling you not to diversify. You know, who is it benefiting, you or your investors? If it's benefiting your investors, do you have the wrong kind of investors? This is, this is really the bedrocks of corporate finance. That's why I really enjoyed this project. You know, a company should never diversify because the shareholder can diversify themselves. Yes, that's true. But that's only true if you're looking to protect the shareholder. What if you're looking to protect the company itself? Right? So these these simple these simple points we raised it and we, we analyzed it. And we looked, we went and visited some of these large um, institutional investors, you know, these guys that operate out of these they had guys with PhDs in some universities I can't pronounce in France and they just sit and crunch numbers and we, we, we basically built this model simulating what they did and we tried to show it to the CFO and basically what we showed him is that two these institutional shareholders, you are basically a data point. You are a data point that they are putting into their portfolio of investments to generate a certain mean return and a certain standard deviation of risk. As soon as your volatility changes, you change the overall mean and standard deviation of their portfolio because obviously what goes into the portfolio determines the mean and standard deviation of the return, sorry, of the portfolio. So we showed him that if you if you changed your returns, if you diversified, right, and yours, let's say your risk profile reduces, but your returns go up, or whatever the combination, your usefulness to that large institutional shareholder in, and this is very important, in generating a portfolio of a certain mean and standard deviation return, your contribution or your, be or your usefulness changes.
And they're not going to worry about dropping you immediately. They'll just get another stock, another equity class that will help them shape the optimal portfolio they wanted. And, you know, the, the bulk of our study was trying to understand this. And to be honest, you know, we had some pretty savvy, I think, uh, modeling guys on that team, but all in Excel. Mind you, you know, this is not about going out there and learning how to model in some fancy uh, language like Fortran and so on. We all do all Excel modeling and so on. We try to get the client to understand this principle. The other thing we wanted to, to get the client to understand is what is the definition of value? You know, what drives value? Is it is it that, that unusual measure that no one can understand that you're now using? Or is it return on invested capital? And I must say, this is really the part I enjoyed the most because it's going down to fundamentals. What is value? I mean, you know, one thing that I find very surprising is people do their, they go get CFA, charter holders, you get, there's all kinds of them. You've got uh, chartered accountants, you've got MBA, some Stern and Wharton, but the most basic concept is what is value, what is value, and what drives value for a listed company. And we went down to this essence, this core, what drives value, and we just break it down into the common elements of, you know, the dividends, capital appreciation, volatility, and so on, and try to get the client to understand this. And we try to get the client to understand, you know, are you a growth company? If you're not a growth company, you know, are you what are your returns like? You know, simple frameworks. It was a very, very challenging engagement to make the theory simple and logical so that people could follow it. Because what I did find initially, even when I was working with the with the associates, and we had some guys that were really good at math and uh, fi and financial mathematics, but I found they were explaining things in a way that that no one could understand. And and I was actually practicing strategy, and it comes to the to the third event, right? We are presenting to the whole Exco, and I had met the whole Exco before, and I realized very quickly that the HR director, you know, as they call in, they, they called in um, in the British system, they call them directors, board members. So the HR director, you know, very nice lady, you know, but she didn't really understand how the company worked. And and then I met the chief marketing officer. Also, we met him in the first meeting. Nice guy, didn't understand how the company worked. The chief investment officer, really nice guy, chief investment officer, mind you. But again, he wasn't—he was new to the industry. Really didn't understand the mechanics of how value is created. Um, the chief compliance officer, the chief legal officers, the chief le ethics officers, or you know, chief ethics directors, as they call them, or barristers in Britain, or whatever the term is—I forget these days. But the point is, my strategy was to get all of them to understand how value is created because I had the hypothesis that because the way value in this company was, def because value was defined at this company in such a confusing way, no one was challenging the chief financial officer and the CEO on the direction they, sh they should take. And my strategy was to make the finance so easy to understand. Obviously, don't dumb it down and lose the uh, key points, but finance should never be complex. It should be, you know, with the right amount of effort, the right amount of graphs, the right amount of you know, depictions, we could make this easy. And we spent a lot of time. I mean, this was a project where we'd be up till six in the morning, just I remember spending five hours making one slide. I know you can tell me it's overkill, but in my final report, in the final presentation, the XCO, I only presented 15 slides. And uh, you can argue and say that was the executive summary. That was not the executive summary. That was all the slides I had. I only had 15 slides. My strategy was not to go for overkill, but to go for communication. I knew we were working with a new CEO, with a exco that was basically being stranglehold by a CFO who had too much information, and the only way to neutralize the threat 
and to make the proper decisions be made is to make sure everyone understood corporate finance and the way value is created. So we spent a lot of time trying to build these very, very simple to understand slides that explain how value is created. And we spent so much time reworking the storyboard, right? I mean, we spent hours and days. It was like a five or six week project. And eventually, we did have this offsite meeting, and I remember the offsite meeting really well, because there I was sitting in my corner, um, and you know, this partner did most of the presentation. I'm not going to lie and said I did most of the presentation. The partner did most of it, but uh, I did do a few parts. I think off the we had a day long. We, no, it wasn't a day long. It was two days. The first day we presented. Uh, the presentation started, I think it was about 9 o'clock. It was really a nice setting in the English countryside, you know, fantastic. I mean, the English really know how to do breakfast, you know, fantastic, you know, I think they call them, um, what is the word they use for those things? It's um, it's like a dough-based pastry with some cream and uh, crumpets, I think they call them. Yes, crumpets, you don't see those anymore. And they make these nice sandwiches, fantastic tea. I mean, the English really know how to do tea. So the point is, we had this really nice setting. We were out in the countryside and we were discussing the strategy. In the morning, the the, C, the uh, senior partner came in and another partner came in to present. Firstly, what were other companies doing in the in the industry? And then the partner presented what they think they see happening in the sector. So it was mostly setting the context. So after lunch, which was also a really good lunch, I mean, I think I may have eaten more than I normally do at that session, which is a bad idea because normally when I present, I eat less than I need because I feel that the hunger keeps me alert. I actually overate, which wasn't a good idea, but, you know, it's English food. It's going to be safe. You're not going to have an upset stomach and so on. So I overate and I presented my session. It came after lunch of about 1.30 till about 5 o'clock. You know, there I was. I was busy talking through the mechanics of how this project was going to work and so it actually went down very well I didn't present for a long time again it was my 15 slides and I presented for I can't remember the exact time the, the details you know avoid it's, it's been a long time but I think it may have been three hours but I, you know I stand to be correct on that it was a long time we did take a sort of a 20 minute break between it for questions and so on but it went really well because we had pre-presented everything to the client right the client had seen everything there was there was no surprises uh, everything had worked as planned and it was it was really quite an an amazing experience because everything that we had discussed was never challenged the entire session now that's quite interesting We're presenting to the exco of one of, of the largest company in its sector where it initially challenged us but no one was saying anything. In fact, what I liked particularly about the session is that you know the chief, the HR director, was adding to the discussion because she understood the finances for the first time, and she was asking tough questions like, you know, why are we spending all this money here if clearly it's not going to give us a return? You know, why are we telling our, why are we recruiting senior managers with these skill sets when, when if if the value driver analysis is telling us this is what we need to maximize, why are we not investing there? And she actually turned out to be quite a peach, and she really, I think, you know, um, showed that she showed to the CEO that the value we're bringing, we're getting the dialogue he wanted, and and it actually worked to the CEO's benefit because he didn't have to do most of the discussions, which he wouldn't didn't want to do. He wanted his exco team to see for themselves what was wrong but the, the the best part of all is at the end when we we're having this discussion I didn't say much I just sat down and busy scrolling through my Blackberry and so on the CFO stood up and he said this is a great presentation I think what is very clear to us is that we we now know we and he kind of said it in a you know subdued way but we we now know 
return on invested capital is the way we have to go. So I think what we should do is we should dedicate the next day to how do we, we need to relook at our strategy and see if it allows us to optimize ROIC. If not, what changes do we need to make? And how do we manage the operations in this way? And I think it'll be great if each of us could think about how each of our divisions or areas of responsibility will be affected by ROIC. Now, in, in, in terms of consulting, that's a slam dunk. That's as good as it ever gets. You know, that's a, that's a Jeremy Lin moment, you know, when the client who has challenged you and throughout the entire project stands up and says, you know what, I agree, you're 100% right, we're now going to change what we're doing, it all makes sense, that's good, you know, you actually intend to enjoy dinner afterwards, you, you're a little bit on a high, you, you don't even know what you're eating because everyone's so happy and you, you know, the partner looks at you and winks his eye because he knows the challenges you've been through, so that is just a fantastic outcome, but we're not done yet, because one of the things we were debating with is the fact that we needed to collect data from the largest investor. And I mentioned to you earlier, it was this guy who was knighted by the Queen for co his contributions to the city of London. He's really an amazing gentleman, old guy as well. And I had a meeting with him. So I came back and I had to fly back to London. So I went back again. And I was in my room. I got up at, I think, 6 a.m. to go through my notes and so on. But the client, the CEO, called me at 7 in the morning because he was in the United States meeting investors and he wanted me to talk him through how we should handle some of the questions, which to me was a really good sign because, you know, I had expected him to call the partner to do that, but he said, no, you know, he thought I knew the content very well, he just wants some, you know, sound, but it's just some, he wants to test some of the things that he wants to say to difficult questions, he wanted my thoughts on them, which I, you know, that is really the, the ultimate compliment, is when a client asks you for feedback, I mean, the greatest compliment is when the client tries to hire you for a senior executive position, but I suppose at the age of 25, I'm not really going to get that just yet. So anyway, we had this long discussion, but what, what really messed me up this morning is that while I got up at 6 o'clock, I, I normally shave, shower, and change as soon as I get up, but I thought I had plenty of time, because my meeting with this uh, with the shareholder was at 12.30, so, you know, easy, no promise, I was Plan to stay, spend the whole morning in my hotel just preparing for the meeting, right? The CEO kept me on the phone from, I th I'm not sure of the exact time, it was either 7.30 or 8 o'clock till about 12.30. He basically had a four-hour call with me and then he patched in different people, like he patched in the head of investor relations, he patched in the chief operating officer to, to hear what I was saying, to, you know, because sometimes that I would, if it give me some uh, uh, information, I'd say, okay, if you're going to say this, you need to make sure you're actually doing this in your operations. Then he'd call in the chief operating officer and so on. And... I should have told him I had a meeting with the client, but with the stakeholder, and he knew it actually, but he refused to let me go. He just kept me on the phone and, looks, and I said, look, I'm going to be running late. And he said, um, okay, but don't worry, don't worry. And he just kept me on. So eventually, 12.20, I hadn't had a shower. I hadn't shaved. Um, I don't, I'm pretty sure I had my suit pressed and so on. Didn't hadn't brush my teeth. And there I was getting ready. It's probably the fastest shave shower and brushing of teeth ever so i think i may have shaved in five minutes may have had a shower in three minutes and may have brushed my teeth while, while having a shower so i got out of my hotel at about 12 35 and going down to piccadilly traffic's quite heavy during the day and i was meant to meet at 12 30 i arrived at 12 55 arrived and said that you know i am so and so and i'm here for my scheduled meeting at 12 30 and the uh, secretary said, you, you do know you're running late. And I said, yes, I'm really sorry. Those, you know, it was totally out of my hands. 
Um, and I, but I still take full responsibility for it. But I would still like to use the time left over to simply introduce myself and apologize in person because I feel that's the least I could do. So again, no excuses. I mean, that is how you define yourself. You know, I learned this from a young age with some really outstanding partners. You must show humility and never ever, never ever have an ego. You may, I was wrong. No matter how many ways you look at it, it's my job for not managing the clients and telling them I needed to leave early. It is my, uh, it is my responsibility for wasting the stakeholders' time. So I arrive in the meeting and he say, and he tells me, young man, because, you know, 25, young man, do you know that you've wasted 30 minutes of my time? And I say, and I, I can't remember what I exactly said. I do remember the young man part. It's kind of, you know, when you're being dressed down by a guy who's five foot two, who looks like, you know, he's an old guy, you know. He's, he, he, I've never seen pictures of this guy, but his stature is every, you know, he has the greatest reputation in the city and he's dressing you down. You know, you feel kind of bad. So, but again, you are well trained to handle these things. And I say and to him, look, I really apologize. I make no excuses. It was totally my fault. And really what I'd like to do is, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to take maybe five, ten minutes just to talk you through what we're doing. And if you feel that what we're doing is important, I'd be more than happy to come back. And you know what? The guy gave me like an hour, 15 minutes. So it was a very, very good discussion at the end. But one thing I learned later in my life is that at that time, I thought it was a good discussion. But later on, I realized that this guy had never actually told me anything. He was just really, really good at getting information with, from me without actually saying anything. So I went to see him, but when I was looking at my notes afterwards, I realized he hadn't actually told me anything. You know, he hadn't given away his position. He hadn't told me what he thought. He just collected information from me. I felt that I had, it was a successful meeting, and I think the partners felt it was a relative, it was successful, right? Because at the end of the day. I mean, I don't know if our project or my meeting had any impact in getting him to feel the CEO had a viable strategy. But at the end of the day, he did agree to support the CEO's strategy. But the point is this. When you go into a meeting, a lot of us focus on what we want, right? Which is a viable strategy. But I think you also have to focus on what you're giving away that could hurt your client, you could end up getting what you want, but you could give away more than you need to. And in this particular case, even though we didn't give away, I'm pretty sure, you know, I'm very careful in these meetings. I didn't give away anything. It actually worked out in our benefit. It, this meeting taught me that you have to be very careful. Just because someone is friendly, gives you what you want, doesn't mean the meeting was successful. You have to learn how to manage yourself. And it was a very, very exciting project because by this stage we're busy wrapping up the client was busy trying to you know think through the operational implications of this strategy we never actually got the assignment to to roll out the operational implications of their strategy i think that uh, for whatever reason they felt um, mckinsey would do a better job then in some ways maybe mckinsey would have done a better job because i do feel mckinsey had some better benchmarks in this particular sector and mckinsey did a fantastic job as far as, as I could see because we did go back um, about two or three years later to look at you know reviewing their strategy for the board meeting and you know I was quite impressed with the work McKinsey had done but the point is that I think what this project taught me is a number of things is that consulting is controlled chaos you know this project I didn't have a finance background hell I still don't have a finance background even though I know finance very well after having worked in consulting for so long I've also realized that you don't want to complicate things, and that's what I find many people do. They try to show their value by making something so difficult to understand that only they can explain it, therefore they have to have a job. And what I realize is that that is a horrible way to run your life. 
because you just keeping yourself employed as opposed to adding value what you should do is make things so easy to understand that the rest of your audience can take it and make it their own and adapt it and change it you should not galvanize the knowledge and keep it and it was quite an eye-opener for me to see that when we made the information so easy i mean there's a complex finance corporate finance concepts they're not things you just get in a textbook as well i made a comment about Breedy myers earlier but even then the concepts were not that easy to grasp and they were not even properly i think refined in these textbooks we had to just make it easy for people to understand but not so easy that it lost the value but it was quite a beautiful thing to watch as people who would never have these discussions in the boardroom just come alive and want to contribute and then challenge the ceo challenge the cfo and the cfo challenge the ceo you know a bit of a merry-go-round of challenging here but the point is that's really the role of a consultant, right? You know, we can never do things for clients. And I think that's a mistake we make. And I think some consultants like to take pride in saying, we did this for the client. I think a good consultant would say that we never did this. We enabled the client to do it themselves. And I think that was one of the things I liked about this project is the sense that, you know, at the end of the day, people are going to say what we did was so easy. That's good. But the fact that we got the HR director involved in a corporate finance discussion and she was able to challenge the CFO on merit is, a, to me, the greatest outcome we could have received. The other things I liked about this project is that I, I think the team I had developed in this project, it was difficult for them. I mean, I'm not an easy person to work with because I have very high standards. I'm, people who work with me in training right now know that. I'm, I'm, I'm a pusher. I drive. I push people. But I think the team did come alive. And a lot of the guys who, who had worked on that project went on to big things in consulting and in industry thereafter. But what I also liked about this project was just the amount of collegiality. We ran this project very differently in the sense that we wanted to to work hard but also have a kind of a human spirit side. So remember very clearly whereby, you know, one of the analysts came to me and said, you know what, Michael, I think it'd be a great idea if we if we took Friday for off for lunch and just went out. And I said, okay, where do you want to go? And he picked this place like an hour away in the country. And I said, you know, it's Friday. We, you know, we, I'd rather not leave early, but... You know, if you think it'll, it, it's good, and I looked at where we are in the project midway through a lot of accomplishments, I said, okay, let's do it. We, we, we were gone that whole afternoon. We left at 12.30. We went away. It was got there by 1.30. We had a late lunch at 2 o'clock. We stayed there for about another two hours, 4 o'clock, and then it was already 4 o'clock. We might as well just stay. So we stayed there. And it's the interesting thing we told the client we were doing. We said, look, you know, I'm taking away the team. We're sort of having an off-site meeting. If you're okay with it, I'm just letting you know. And the client was fine with it. It's all about, I think, managing the client and showing the value you bring. Because clearly, if we were doing a bad job, or if we didn't know what we were doing, and the client felt that we were just wasting their time, they would have complained about us, but they didn't. And if the partner know what we were up to, they were okay with it. It's not so common in consulting to do that, because I do find that a lot of managers, you know, they, they will never be fired for working long hours but and not doing a good job, but they will possibly be reprimanded if they look as if they're slacking off and doing a bad job. So I think it takes a lot of confidence um, to to be able to make that call in the middle of a project. But I think more than that, it's also, it's also good to do these things in, the, in, a, in a project because it gives the team a chance to bond, you know. Sometimes people don't give feedback in a formal setting, so I like to take them out and just get them to talk about each other's concerns and so on. And one of the things I realized out of this project is that I, even though I thought I had a pretty good grasp in terms of who was doing what in the project, now having these discussions over muscles and so on and great wine, and I realized that what I, who I thought was doing which part of the project wasn't exactly true. 
And I could see one of the young analysts who I'd assumed was just doing some data gathering and some benchmarking was actually doing a fair bit of the of the modeling. Is doing a pretty good job at that. So it's important to step back every now and again. Um, was the project successful? I think ultimately that's what that's what counts. How would we define success? I mean, did the company share price increase? Yes, the company share price increased quite dramatically. Actually, I think it went up by forty four percent annualized. Were we totally responsible? Obviously not. I mean, we came up with a strategy. We came up with a way to empower the executives. We came up with a blueprint of how to understand their value creation and how they should then uh, weave that into the operations. They worked with McKinsey on the operations side. Um, they had hired, I can't remember, they hired some specialist firm to help them with leadership development, and they made this value creation metric as a core part of their leadership development program. So you can argue and say, you know, I'm, I can imagine that 50% of the people listening to this from Accenture and Deloitte and so on, I can say, but it was the people who did the operations, the implementable strategy that made this count. Sure, but if you're going to implement a bad strategy, you're still going to fail anyway. So I think you need both. Uh, I think you need the right strategy. I think you need the right kind of team as well. You know, never underestimate the team. This was a difficult project. Uh, it just so happened that I was a kind of guy who, you know, maybe I had a bad childhood, so I don't know what difficult is, and I just roll with the punches. But I think a lot of people would have taken this. I've seen other engagement managers. I've seen other more senior people when they get berated like that by a client who just utterly break down and you know need to have a strong shot of whiskey when they get home and need to go for therapy afterwards. But for me, it's it's okay. You know, I'm okay with it. I know that you're under a lot of pressure. So let's you know, let's all you know throw punches at each other and you know have some beers afterwards. Although not British beer, they drink warm beer. That's just horrible. But you get the point. So I think that the the culture is important, the way you're approaching, the mindset has to be there. I've seen consultants who go in, you know, they remind me of Vietnam war veterans. They feel they're under, um, they have the siege mentality, like the client is always wrong. The client's bad. It's the client's fault. And my philosophy is that, yeah, it's screwed up. It's both people's fault. We were at fault for not anticipating these problems, and the client's at fault for not anticipating we couldn't fix it. So I think it's very important when you go into a client situation, you need to have the right mindset. And I've been in some situations where the client is making my life hell, but my philosophy is, look, you're making my life hell because you don't understand me, and I'm sure when you get to know me, you'll think I'm a swell guy and you'll want to work with me. But I've seen, I've worked with, when, when I was an, a, so, um, sorry, a consultant, you know, I've worked with people who, um, in case leaders who go in and they have this dour, depressing mood because they want to create this atmosphere of doom and gloom to get the client to understand how serious it is. And I hate that. I hate that. Uh, when people say you need to create a burning bridge, you've heard that phrase, a burning bridge to get change. Yeah, you don't have to make it you know, sound like you know, Dat Vada is about to descend on the earth. You've got to make it, build it on merit. But work should always be fun. I mean, even this project, I mean, these guys have just come through one of the worst and most you know, difficult defenses ever. And it's our job to make them feel good about running the business again. No matter what the partner said, I felt that was my job. You know, 25 years old, but you know what? I had access to the CEO, I had access to the CFO, access to the COO, I had access to the executive committee, access to the largest shareholder, access to all of the shareholders if I wanted it. So I was going to educate them and make them feel good about this. I was going to show them the value in their business and how to extract that value. It's all about the mindset. I love this project. I mean, really, I wish I had more projects like this sitting in you know, fancy places like New York City, the city of London, and just you know living the high life. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work out that way. But let me tell you something. You know, Consulting is what you make of it. I find so many people going into consulting, they have this mentality that, you know, I go into consulting, it's all going to be, you know, wonderful. It's not going to be wonderful. It's going to be horrible. You go into consulting and you expect the project to make your life great. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to have a horrible experience. 
But if you go into consulting with the mindset that irrespective of how bad this project is, I'm going to find the value, I'm going to create the value, I'm going to do amazing things. Every project I go into, I don't just do what the firm had done before. I say, okay, this is what the best, this is what the partner said was the best project we had done before in this area. How do we make it better? How do we push the boundary in terms of the value we add and in terms of the intellect, intellectual underpinnings that we are developing? If you do that, you also tend to attract people because people think, wow, if I get onto this guy's project, I'm definitely going to do some amazing research and so on. I'm going to push the boundaries in terms of what's possible. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Luckily, that project went well because my next project was a little bit tougher, I think. But I'll cover that in this follow-up podcast. If you have any questions, please feel free to you know, post them under the blog. I'll be happy to respond to them. Thank you.